Good morning. Today's Bible reading will be Revelations chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, that's found on page 1092. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with the white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen, and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to, I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to the living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here today. If you are visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning, and we pray that our members will stand around you and welcome you and greet you. Uh, you will uh, be great, greatly pleased to know that I'm not the normal pulpit minister here. Uh, the guy that will be here next week is a much better preacher. He's not as good looking as I am, but he's a much better preacher, and so you'll enjoy that when you come back. And those of you that know me know this will be more of a Bible lesson uh, than a sermon. Also, those of you that have endured the three classes that I've taught here on Revelation, I know you read your bulletin this week, as all of you do before you come to worship, and you were dreading probably coming here this morning. But don't worry, we're not going to study uh, it in the same manner that we do in a Bible class setting. We're going to talk about this glimpse that we have into heaven. Our stateside mission team is away this week. That's one of the reasons that I'll be the only testosterone in the office this week. They're all gone and, and doing a good job there knocking on doors and both Wayne and David are, are preaching. And they wanted me to remind you, I got a text about five after eight to remind you uh, that the stateside sessions will be available on our website. So I'm not entirely sure if that's live or they'll be recorded on there, but uh, in case you want to miss our sermon on 2 Peter 3 tonight, you can uh, go and watch that online, but they will be uh, televised on there. Also, we have a mission team away in Brazil, uh, and they'll be returning on the 14th, which I believe is the same day uh, that stateside returns. So please be prayerful for the efforts in Kentucky and the door knocking that's going on, and that we'll have success there, and to be with our team of adults and youth uh, and ministry staff that is there. All of our interns are there, and Philip will be leaving uh, this afternoon to go up there. Uh, after he finishes leading singing here. So we're very excited uh, about that. 
It's not very often that I get to speak for the entire Sunday, and I know you guys are ready to say amen to that, but it's not every time that we get to do that. So, you know, David gets to pick all these days that we name. We are the Sermon Day and Second Greatest Commandment Day and Thrive Day, Back to School Day, all these special days. So I decided I'm going to get to pick a day. And if you've looked at your bulletin, you know we're going to talk about heaven this morning. We're going to talk about the end of the world tonight. And so I have named this Apocalypse Sunday. This will be a new Sunday that we have uh, here at the congregation that I get to pick out what it is. And that's what happens when they turn me loose uh, for an entire day uh, and looking at that. But this is a beautiful story. I used to have great apprehension about studying the book of Revelation. I thought, well, it's just too complex. It's too strange. Uh, it's too weird. And it is complex and strange and different to our 21st century uh, eyes and ears. But it's a, a beautiful book once you study it. And it's not beyond your understanding to read if you understand the context of it. And tonight's or today's sermon about heaven uh, is this glimpse that we have that was just read by Tim up here that this is what heaven looks like. This is a scene in heaven. Now we have to be very careful when we read Revelation, literally. Uh, all of these visions are exactly that that John saw. They were visions, they were highly symbolic. Um, but you guys are more familiar with the book than you think you are. You don't think you know anything about Revelation, but every song that we have sung this morning and we will sing after this, every one of them has a concept or quote or image from the book of Revelation. And there are dozens more. When I was trying to go through the song book and think about songs uh, that I could mention to Philip about singing, everything about heaven. We don't have a glimpse of heaven anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't know what it looks like. Paul told the Corinthian church that he was caught up, or somebody he knew at least, may have been him, opinions are different, was caught up into the third heaven. But he didn't come back and tell us anything about it. We didn't know what it looked like. And so we have this glimpse into heaven from John that we see what goes on. And any concept we have of heaven, worthy is the lamb. The reason we sing that song is because only the lamb was found worthy to open the scroll uh, in heaven that we see at the beginning uh, of Revelation. There's a lot of other things that we see here uh, in there that we may not know about. I think about uh, the concept of the lamb, continuing that. Jesus is only referred to as a lamb four times in the New Testament outside of this book. Twice John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world uh, when Jesus was coming to where John was preaching. And Philip, when he's talking to Ethiopian eunuch, the only time a lamb is mentioned there is when he's quoting from the book of Isaiah to tell the Ethiopian eunuch about how Isaiah was talking about the coming of the Messiah. And then Paul refers to Jesus as the Passover lamb uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. 32 times the lamb is mentioned in Revelation. So for us to talk about Jesus as the lamb of God, we have to have revelation to make us appreciate what that is. And we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more. Uh, First Peter talks about him being a lamb without blemish. But think about the other things that you don't know about unless you have revelation. We can't talk about pearly gates without revelation. The word hallelujah only happens four times in the New Testament and all of them are in Revelation. The line of the tribe of Judah is from Revelation. The Alpha and the Omega uh, is from Revelation. Be faithful until death and I'll give you a crown of life uh, is an oft misquoted uh, verse. Uh, some people in the church read that verse and say, okay, I'm supposed to be faithful my whole life and I'll be getting a crown of life. In the context of Revelation, he's telling the crowd, he's telling the church, be faithful to the point of dying 
for Christ and I'll give you a crown of life. It's about martyrdom, not about a lifetime uh, of Christianity. And, and that, that, this is still a good application. The book of life that we see in Revelation, that's not a New Testament concept. That comes from the book of Exodus and is also mentioned in the book of Philippians. We think about a street of gold. Now I hate to disappoint you, but Revelation does not talk about streets of gold. It talks about a street of gold. So if you don't live on the main street in heaven, you're not gonna have a street of gold. You're just gonna have normal paved street. There's only one street talked about in Revelation. It is a singular uh, term. And also when Jesus is talking to the church, he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, if you wanna invite me in and be supple with you and you know, we be together, you can do that. And he's asking the church to straighten their wagon up uh, and to do right. So you may know more about Revelation, the songs that you sing and things that you do uh, than you ever thought about. The concept that we'll talk about tonight as we talk about the end of all these things material that we see in this world and how they're gonna be gone one day, the concept of a new heaven and a new earth that Peter talks about in 2 Peter is also in Revelation, at the end of Revelation, but it's not a New Testament concept either. They are quoting Isaiah who twice says, God will make a new heaven and a new earth within the context of restoring his people back to their promised land. Revelation is not a message about the end of the world. It's a message about hope for Christians who are under a persecuting government. And we see in the evangelical world the twisting of this book into some strange thing where we're looking for blood moons and all this other strange oddball stuff that Revelation, the first three chapters were written to these seven churches in Asia and the rest of the book uh, is gonna happen sometime in the future. The reason that interpretation is foolish is because it renders the book entirely useless to its first century audience. There would have been no purpose in giving these people a message and then they think, okay, this is gonna happen 2,000 plus years from now. So it means nothing to me. Although I'm living in a time where I'm fixing to face about 200 years of oppression by the Roman government, this message is for somebody else thousands of years from now. It doesn't make any sense. I'm gonna tell you something. Whenever you read your Bible, your first interpretive step is to say, what did this mean to its original audience? Because it had a purpose. Sometimes it's not a popular thing I say, but I don't think the Bible was written to us, but the Bible was written for us. If it was written to us, it'd been written in Tennessee English, and it'd been written in a, a, a cultural context that we would understand, and we can't. But we have to read Revelation in that same way. What did it mean to its listener? It's fortunate that perhaps it's not our cultural context today to be a persecuted church. Some of you are saying, well, wait just a minute, Tim. We are a persecuted church. No, you're not. Not anywhere close to what happened in the first century and the second century to the church. You don't know what it's like to be an economic ruin because of what you believe in. Everybody here would be in poverty in the first century church during persecution. Why do you think Paul had to take up money in Macedonia and Achaia to send back to the Judeans? Because if you decide to be a Christian in the Jewish world of Judea, you could easily just be ostracized from society. They didn't have to give you a job. They didn't have a bill of rights uh, that they had to look at. They didn't have something that made them treat you equally. They could easily treat you terribly. And we see from secular history that the Roman government, when the Christians refused to take on emperor worship, they became ostracized economically, socially, and persecuted physically. We, we don't experience that here. 
yet, but I think it's coming. I often concern myself with what will happen when the American church finally faces persecution. How many will be here on Sunday morning when it's illegal to be here? When they can take you and your children to prison for you being here? When you could be put to death for being here? When you could lose your job and your home and everything you have taken from you, your assets seized because you decide to be a Christian? I don't know how, I don't know if I'm ready for that or not. I pray that my faith will grow and I'll know that when the time comes that I will be. But I'm concerned about that because I know that my daughter and maybe my grandchildren will face that in this country. You know, we have the freedom to worship and the government is not allowed to establish a religion and I am so thankful uh, for that. I can't imagine our government screwing up anything worse than religion when they've messed up everything else that they've touched. But that is a right that can be taken away if three quarters of the state legislatures decide to take that amendment out of the Constitution. I worry about that. But we can read about an early church that went through that and here's the message of hope uh, that they were given is what we see in Revelation. Sure, it's full of strange images, things that we don't understand. There's beasts and there's big numbers, 144,000, there's 1,000, there's 666. There's all these strange symbols that we see uh, in Revelation, beasts and dragons and harlots riding these beasts and dragons. It's very strange and unusual to us, but I don't know if you guys have ever read Shakespeare in school. Now, some of you guys may remember that torturous time uh, in your life, and, and some of you may enjoy it, so I don't mean to say that. But it's hard to understand when you read Shakespeare because it's not written in the language and the cultural context of our time. We don't know what that means. It's kind of like trying to read the King James Bible. The reason you, don't, the reason you can't read it and the reason you can't understand half the words in it is because you don't speak 17th century English, which is what it's translated in. But Shakespeare is the same way. It's written in 500 years ago in a cultural context we don't understand. Well, what about Revelation? I don't understand it. It's strange. It's unusual. But the first century audience did because they were immersed for the past several hundred years in literature that read the same way. Now, some of you that are serious Bible students, you've read Zechariah, you've read Ezekiel, you've read the last few chapters of Daniel, you've read Isaiah. It's got some strange language and strange imagery in there. That's because it's talking about the restoration of Israel and it's talking about a time where there'll be a new place to live and a restoration of Israel that they'll be delivered from the persecution of the Babylonians and then on through time from the Greeks and even from the Romans. That literature read just like Revelation. It was chock full of strange imagery there. What about our scene this morning? There's a few strange things in it that take a little bit of our understanding, but not too bad. And that's why I selected this passage today because this is a hopeful passage for the people who read it in the first century. It's a hopeful passage for us that read it today in the 21st century. It's a passage about there being an innumerable number of people around the throne of God. And when I read this, I thought about when Jesus said, narrow is the path and difficult is the path to righteousness, but, and few will find it. But wide and flat is the plain and the gate that lead to destruction, and many will find it. It's an easy path. And I, we look at that verse and we think sometimes, I'm gonna go to heaven and not gonna be that many people there because only few will find it. 
but only a few found it in Jesus' day and a few found it in the next century and the next century and the next century. It's been 2,000 years of people finding that gate. In John's vision, he says that there's a multitude gathered around the throne that no one could number. And I, can you imagine that? You know, we look at crowds sometimes and we think we can't number them. You think about it, sometimes we walk into a football stadium. We say, okay, there's 70 or 80,000 there. If you're a UT person of, of great taste, you come in there and say there's 110,000 people in this stadium. And we can kind of generally know there's 14,000 people in Bridgestone Arena or there's 5,000 people at a basketball game. Imagine a number of people that you, you can't number them. A huge number of people. And I believe that this scene, because it says for people gathered there were from every tribe and every nation and every people and every language, that this is a scene of heaven when it's all said and done. There are other passages that talk about martyrs being before the throne of God, those that are killed during this particular persecution period. But this one here says an innumerable, innumerable multitude, millions that he can't explain. So think about that image for just a second. When we get to heaven, we're gonna to get to see everyone that's become part of the body of Christ since the church began and those that were righteous living under God's old law in the Old Testament. That's a lot of people. Jew and Gentile. This is not just an image of Jews standing before the throne or an image of Gentiles or just Christians. This is of all people, of all nations, of all tribes, of all languages, everywhere that are in heaven with God. And we look and see what is their focal point? Their focal point is God and the Lamb. If we look at the passage that was read uh, by Tim a few minutes ago, we say here uh, in 9 through 11, a great multitude there standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They got palm branches in their hands, they're clothed in white robe, and they say, salvation belongs to who? To our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels and elders in heaven, these images that we see in these four living creatures that represent all of creation are bowing down before this focal point, the throne of God. And they say, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving in verse 12, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. We go on to see that John is told, he, he's asked the question by the other, who are these people? And John turns to him and says, sir, you know who they are. Meaning, I don't know who they are, but you know who they are. And he says in verse uh, 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night uh, in his temple. There's a therefore at the beginning of, of verse uh, 15 here that we need to think about and look at. The focal point's been God. The people gathered there, the ones that have come out this, this great tribulation. And I thought about that term that's sometimes used wrongly uh, and misinterpreted in today's uh, evangelical world and talking about some future period of suffering in between this manufactured rapture and then this manufactured coming to God, coming of Jesus to this earth and reigning here for a thousand years. Those kind of concepts come from reading Revelation partly literally and partly symbolically, which you can't do. You have to read everything in the book uh, symbolically, which is a different way of looking at things. But we see uh, this image is there and think about this huge number of people standing before the throne uh, and their focal point being the lamb and they've come out of this great tribulation. This time, uh, this Greek term is translated elsewhere in the Bible as affliction 
or, or persecution or suffering. And so for us today, we think, well, that was back then. That was what that church dealt with. Uh, and now they got great relief in knowing that one day they'll stand before the presence of God because they've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. But we can face that too. We can think about anguish and suffering. Right before one of the most popular verses in the Bible in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells young Timothy, when he's talking about the evil men going from bad to worse all around you, he says, all Christians will suffer for their love of Christ. All Christians will endure trouble and affliction for their love of Christ. He's telling this young man that as Paul's about to depart this world and he says, all Christians are going to suffer this thing. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, when he's given his parting words before going to the cross, he says, you're going to suffer in this world. You're going to go through pain and affliction and anguish. And, and I think sometimes we, we look at that word and we think about it just means physical pain and suffering uh, and, and death and disease. Uh, and, and sure, those cause us great tribulation and suffering, but we're supposed to get sick and, and we're supposed to die. You know, th those are things that, that happen naturally. They have always happened. I don't know anybody here in this room that's, you know, thousands of years old. That, that happens to everyone. We're supposed to die. Our bodies are supposed to decay and get weak and old and sick. And nobody enjoys doing that. But we're talking about an outside source of affliction uh, and suffering that comes on people. That's what's going on right here. Not something that we're going through just in the physical sense. This is something we can't control at all. Uh, sometimes we can control physical problems, sometimes we can't. But I think about the promise that's given here to these folks, and this is what we really get down to the nitty gritty here, to the nuts and bolts we look at and say, okay, Tim, you're talking about suffering and, and being persecuted, and perhaps these days we do suffer a little bit of social persecution because we don't agree with the mainstream uh, liberal media or we don't agree with the, the liberal uh, approach to sexuality or anything else that you want to put in that box that Christians are viewed as being closed-minded and, and unusual and strange and, uh, and, and racist and homophobic about uh, and all those ways that we're looked at. And in some ways we deserve uh, some uh, negative criticism because of our hypocrisy. But we will uh, be more and more set outside. Those of you in this room that are my age and older, you've seen a tremendous difference in society over the past four decades. Uh, it's been a tremendous change. Those of you that lived through the 60s saw a tremendous change and shift in American society. And I dare say any of this room could say, well, when I was a young person, America was less godly than they are today. Or the people that surround me were less godly than they are today. I think it'd be exactly the opposite. You could say, I wish the good old days were back in what they were saying. But let's think about the promise that we're given here, the scene that we see. What happens to those who endure, who are washed in the blood of the lamb? They will serve before the throne of God all day and all night in his holy temple where he sits on the throne and he will tabernacle them in his presence. And it's interesting the language that, that John uh, is given here in the vision he sees of palm branches waving uh, as they praise God on the throne. The palm branches in Leviticus 23 are a symbol and a thing used in the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's interesting with the context of that. We think about the Feast of Tabernacles was given to the Jews to celebrate the time that they dwelt in tents in the wilderness after they were released from being under Egyptian persecution. 
and we think about Jesus being the Lamb of God. A lamb was not the sacrifice made for the sins of Israel on the Day of Atonement. That was a goat and a bull was sacrificed for the high priest. That's why Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. A lamb was not the atonement sacrifice. Paul calls him our Passover lamb. Well, why was that lamb slaughtered? That lamb was slaughtered to break the back of the Egyptian oppressors of the people of God. And it resulted in their liberation and their freedom and them going to the promised land. Now, if that's not a parallel we see in Revelation, and that's not why John chose this language and was given this language uh, to speak in his visions, you don't read the book of Revelation right. Paul calls him our Passover lamb. Passover had nothing to do with redemption from sin. It had to do with freedom. It had to do with deliverance from an oppressive hand. And I believe that's why Revelation will call him and the images that John sees uh, of a lamb. And then he talks about this feast of tabernacles, this palm waving and branches and long robes that are put on by the Jews to celebrate this. The tabernacles celebrates their freedom from Egyptian oppression in their time uh, in the woods. And so here he's, he's tabernacling them with his presence, another use of that same image that's there. But what do we like? We like they'll never hunger no more nor thirst anymore. I really like the part about not being hungry anymore. That's my favorite thing. And we read that and we're like, oh, I'm never gonna be hungry and thirsty again. I dare say there's very few people in this room know what it's like to be hungry and to be thirsty. I know at least one man here that knows what that feels like, to be hungry. Not just I need something to eat, but to be starving to death and to be thirsty. And these people would know what that's gonna be like. And the ones that came after them for generations under the Roman persecution would know what it was like to be hungry and to be thirsty because you could be prohibited from buying food in the marketplace because you were a Christian. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. That's often an image for pain and suffering in the Bible. And here's the beautiful thing. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. Isn't that a strange concept for a lamb to be a shepherd? But that's what Jesus will be over us, one who takes care of us. And he says here, we'll guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's probably our most precious quote out of Revelation. We think about God wiping away every tear. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more sadness, no more struggles with depression, no more anything that make us sad and upset. No more betrayals by friends, no more divorce, no more anything that causes pain and suffering in this world. We get to choose whether we want to go to that place or not. There's another place described in the book of Revelation, the lake of fire, a place of pain and suffering that those who oppressed, it, oppressed God's people and those who allied themselves with Satan's agent, Satan himself, will be thrown into. This is where we get our concept of burning in hell uh, is from Revelation. We have a choice between those two things. Which one do you want? Do you want to say, I'm tired of suffering in this life and I'm ready to go on to the next life? Well, are you? Are you ready to go on to the next life? Because in the next life, there's only two destinations out there. There's a place that we look at here, which was a place of hope and a message of hope to those who were enduring horrible, oppressive persecution. And one day they can be with the Lamb of God. They can be before the throne. You know, I think sometimes people see heaven as some place of idleness. 
that we're all sitting around floating on fluffy clouds and playing harps. Heaven is a place of service and praise and honor to God. That's the images that the Bible gives us. And remember how Paul says, I long to go and be with Christ, but I'll work here as long as I have to because I love you and I want to do God's work, but I long to depart this world and go to heaven. Paul knows better than anybody, right, about suffering and persecution. Beaten, whipped, put in prison, without food, without water, ostracized and cast out from his own kinfolk, the Jews. Everywhere he went, he runs into trouble. He was stoned nearly to death. That's persecution. That's biblical persecution, not just people making fun of you at work. So I hope that you'll make a choice today. And if not today, I hope you'll begin to make that choice that I'm going to be prepared to endure this life and look forward to the next one in heaven with God. Because if not, you can look forward to eternity in hell with Satan. And we don't talk about that. You know, that's one of the things in church Christ we don't talk about. We always just talk about the good things. The alternative is uh, an eternity of pain and suffering that the people that hate God deserve. This view I see in heaven, I look forward to. I'm excited about that. To stand before the creator of the universe, to understand things that I've never understood before. You guys that know me know I've got more questions in the Bible about the Bible than maybe any of you. And I can't wait to see God and know the answers and understand everything and to, to see what this truly looks like and see what John's imagery represents there. But if I don't choose to maintain my relationship with God, if I choose to fall away, then I can be taken away from his church. And perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you said, yes, I know what it was like to hope for heaven one day, but I've kind of changed and gone back on my own path of doing things and I'd like to come back to that. I urge you not to delay that decision either. There's a beautiful place to go to. There's a beautiful church family here that can love you and support you. My family knows that better than ever over the past 18 months. I promise you it's better than being alone and then we'll be together in heaven one day. Don't delay in making that decision. Choose to be before God's throne and before the lamb one day as this crowd was, as exciting as that would have been to the old man John who was probably getting into his 80s and 90s here and knowing that his time on earth ahead was shorter than what was behind. What a beautiful thing that would have been to see what a beautiful message to those who would suffer for the name of the Christ in the coming centuries at the hand of the Roman government. Are you prepared for the outcome of your death? I hope that you are. But if you're not, we want to help you with that today. We want to help you be baptized into Christ. We want to study with you. And if you've fallen away from the church and from a relationship with Christ, if you're no longer walking in the light, as 1 John talks about, then don't let that go on any longer. We want to